Welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Purple, a color that doesn't exist? What? Wait, what's going on here? Purple doesn't exist? How is that possible? What's going on? (laughs) Why would I say something like that? Purple is one of my favorite colors. Purple has to exist. What about Harold and his Purple Crayon, my favorite book uh, growing up. He drew an entire world with that Purple Crayon. Okay, so, all right, sorry about this. I'm trying to be, trying to be dramatic. Why this question is purple? Does purple exist? Does color exist? Kind of came up through other podcast episodes, specifically talking about like after images and successive contrast and how our perception of color is determined by so many different factors. So I've read more like philosophical questions. Does that color actually exist or is it only in our minds? Like if so much is dependent on the color of the atmosphere and what's siphoned through and the strength of our cones and the types of cones and individual people's eyes are not all the same. So this philosophical question almost comes up in various things that I've read that's similar to the question, if a tree falls in the woods and there's nobody there to hear it, does it make a sound? If a color bounces off something and there's nobody there to look at it, does the color exist? And there is a bit of a question mark when it comes to purple and how that that color, how does it exist? Because if we look at the spectral band, the rainbow, we have on one side of the line of wavelengths, we have like violet, blues. So these are the shorter wavelength colors. Then they go into greens and oranges or yellows, oranges, reds. So the way that, the and the reds are like the longest wavelengths. So the way that we perceive the color yellow or orange is through the, the stimulation and the vibration of cone cells on the retina that are sensitive to medium and long wavelengths of green and red, essentially. And so... If it's an equal uh, stimulation of uh, cone cells on the red and the green side, you get what's called school bus yellow or like safety yellow. It's like this yellow that's a bit orange. So more green cone vibrations, more of a ratio of them, a higher ratio, you'll get more of like a canary yellow. And then if there's fewer green cones vibrating and more on the red, you'll get into like orange and like the color of an orange and stuff like that, right? And then if we go to the other side of the spectrum, the lower side, we've got the blues and the violets and then green again in the middle. And if we mix, if we have green stimulation and violet stimulation, 
we get different colors between there. In fact, uh, Ogden Brood had listed that Thomas Young first cited the three primary colors of light as violet, green, and red, because the, as, and then it was later changed to blue, which I haven't exactly figured out why that happened. I think it's because violet and green vibrations don't always create the, mo the most strong blues, especially in RGB computer screen stuff. So they changed it, so that's why it's RGB instead of V, or no, RG, V, RGV. Okay, um, keep going in. So, so, but at any rate, you kind of follow me, like we can see these yellows and oranges by virtue of vibrations of red and green cones. And then on the other side, we've got green to violet and the blue, where we see various blue greens and green blues and all the different shades of green that we would say are tipping towards blue. Those are ratios of green and blue cones vibrating. So, but curiously here, what doesn't happen is when you vibrate the red cones, stimulate the red cones with long wavelengths and the blue cones with short wavelengths, the color in between those two on the band is green. So by this logic, if we're getting short wavelength stimulation and long wavelength stimulation on our cones of the retina, they should be signaling to our brain that we're seeing green. But the question mark is there's a green cone that's responsible for telling the mind there's already somebody there in the shop saying, hey, I'm in charge of green. And so it's thought that when those blue and red cones are vibrating and it's telling the brain that it's green, but the mind isn't getting any signals from the actual green cells. It rejects the whole thing altogether and makes up this color that we call purple. So purple is not, some people I think conflate purple and violet. Purple is probably part of the violet family. It's, it's more closer to red. So it's going to be a violet that is, is, is reddish, has a distinct reddishness to it. Well, it can be subtle. But if you look at the spectral band of color again, you know, a prism or a rainbow in the sky, that color isn't going to be, I don't think that color is in the actual spectrum. So it's thought that perhaps in the, in the absence of the green cone vibrations, our minds say, this cannot be green, so therefore it has to be its supplementary color, which we call purple. So then I've read into stuff where they take ideas like that and just how subjective our color vision is and and it kind of boils down to the question do any of these colors exist and how we're seeing them or is it truly just all in our minds and if so what are the ramifications and i yeah i and i haven't gotten super far into that kind of brand you know philosophical looking at at color and the psychology i've tapped more into trying to understand the psychology of what's happening. If color is so subjective, then how is our psychology affecting, which is our, I kind of see it as our past experiences and the makeup of our beings. And so, which reminds me of an analogy as an artist that I've thought about for many years that I kind of like as a metaphor and that is related to the first law of thermodynamics, which has to do with how 
in a closed system, energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can just change form. And here I gotta say, I'm not a physicist, and I may be reading this completely wrong, so if there's somebody out there that does understand this, you can maybe straighten me out. But I like this idea as an analogy about art making and the creative process and also color theory in general, in a general way, because the basis of the whole thing is called electromagnetic radiation or or energy. It's electric and magnetic waves that are carrying photons, which are a unit of energy. I believe they're like one of the smaller unit. They're like a quantum type unit of energy that has no mass. So it can travel at the speed of light through vacuum. And so light is a form of energy and the visible spectrum is that small area in the spectrum that humans can perceive. And there's other other wavelengths in this in the spectrum like gamma rays and radio waves and, and all that kind of stuff too and we can't see those as people can't see those. And so if the universe is arguably a closed system, then all the energy that exists that has ever existed or can exist currently exists. And one form of that energy is light energy. And when it stimulates the rods and cones of our eyes and other stuff like that, it gets converted into other electric signals that get sent to our mind. So the, the idea of these colors is that they're energy signals that cannot be destroyed or created by that virtue. They just change form. And I think about this as an artist, as a, as a metaphor for the creative process, in that, and if I'm reading this correctly, if, if energy follows these lines, then matter kind of goes hand in hand with energy because it's, it's energy that's, that's binding together the molecules that we recognize as objects or things in our world. And that matter can't be created or destroyed either. It can just be taken apart and rearranged and put back together in ways that appears to be new. And I kind of like thinking of the creative process being like that, where I'm just taking the sum of my experience and my knowledge and what I'm thinking about and what I'm looking at and the artwork that I'm making, and I'm just taking things apart and reassembling them the way that I would as Ed Charbonneau, and that that thing looks different, but really it's just a collection of a bunch of other stuff rearranged into something that looks new. Because I I think for me, this art making business is as much about what I'm thinking about the work as well as like what it looks like aesthetically and how those two ultimately relate to each other and communicate to, to a viewer. And so if we go back to our idea of purple possibly not existing in nature necessarily, more in our minds, there's another phenomenon with the color yellow. I don't know if you've ever thought, like, have you ever thought about how, like, dark yellows kind of don't really happen? 
and at least in a chromatic way. And have you ever noticed how yellow can tip to be a little green as it gets darker? Well, that, I believe, is the product of something called the Purkinje effect, which I talk about in another podcast, Purkinje shift. And that states that as light lessens, the red sensitive cone cells become less active and diminish and kind of take a nap, making our perceptions of greens and blues more strong as the light lowers. And so one way to lower the light is to have sunset or whatever or turn the lights off in a room. But another way of lowering light is to have an object reflect less light. So a black object is lower in light. That's why we perceive it as black, because it's reflecting less, less light waves. And so as yellow gets darker and is reflecting fewer wavelengths or... Our perception of the red within the yellow, yellow is made up of green and red, cone stimulation. Our perception of that red lessens, and so it pulls our perception of the yellow more towards green. And so oftentimes, if you mix these darker yellows, you may get these unexpected green shades, like what's going on there? And it's basically dark yellow. It, it exists as a color, more than likely. It's just that we can't see it. We can't perceive it. And so maybe it's like this question of a certain amount of our ability to see things is governed by physiological things, like what are the cone cells in our retinas and what are they doing? And then, but a bigger part, I think, how our minds, I don't know, is it bigger? Or what, but how our minds are interpreting that information and contextualizing it on our prior experiences of the world and of life in general. So perhaps this question of do colors exist outside of our minds is, has more to do with our perception in terms of how attuned we are to seeing the colors and how that can change over time and develop. And sometimes it can happen rather quickly. So I have this theory of sorts. It's based on a few different things, kind of thinking of like the psychology of color and something I like to call the subjective competition theory of attention, otherwise known as selective attention. That's how it kind of... And so thinking about how colors are noticeable and a lot of the times, and in thinking about like designing a composition for an artwork painting or print or whatever, or photograph, or anything, sculpture, whatever is going to be experienced visually when I'm working on this thing. So it's all about these strategies for approaching stuff. That's kind of my, I think, how my brain kind of like tries to categorize this stuff into like these strategies. So not like a formula, like if you do this, that, and another thing, you're going to make something good. This selective attention has intrigued me because thinking about a composition, there's going to be focal points that are more than likely going to be very noticeable to people right off the bat. And I, I did a podcast on uh, focal points in, in talking about those terms of those dominant focal points. But then can there be, once, once a viewer engages with a work, enters into it through mainly noticing its dominant features, 
then what what is happening over the course of time and viewing so there's an order or at least I, there has to be i don't know if the this the same order wouldn't apply to every single person but if something is happening over time then there's like an order right so it's made me think about how can i think about my work in terms of that there could be secondary sets of objects or colors or just about anything that are throughout the composition that once they're noticed they all of a sudden gain a level of dominance that brings the viewer's eye through the piece more and more and more and and connects with them and so part of this idea of the subjective competition theory of attention is kind of based off of the idea of like I don't know if you've ever have you ever bought like a red car and all of a sudden you're driving around and you're like, oh my gosh, there's, I can't believe how many red Toyota Camrys are out, are out, you know, on the streets and stuff. So it's like this idea that now that I've noticed this car that I'm in, I'm seeing that car all over the place. Whereas, you know, we ignore most of our environment just by virtue of, um, of necessity, I think, in order to be able to like just walk across the street without having a nervous breakdown like you got to look at everything it's like okay i can just do this i got a vague idea of where the ground is and i got a vague idea of where some other stuff is and i don't see anything moving fast like a car so it's, i'm not going to get run over so taking that idea of the red toyota camry like can that be applied to approaching a color scheme where we have certain factors that we know in the composition are going to be very dominant and other factors that are going to be less dominant yet very sophisticatedly placed so that we sustain a viewer's attention by finding these secondary and tertiary and so on and so forth down the road like these pathways through the work and all of a sudden you got somebody like really engaged with what's going on and then hopefully your ideas are coming across with it Hopefully you're accomplishing what you want to communicate, right? There's another factor in this in terms of psychology, and I, and I think I got this right, but I don't know. It's a, it gets complicated. It's this, this concept of top-down and bottom-up processing in the perception of images. So top-down, bottom-up. So there's this thing, evidently, that like a, top, a typical top-down reaction response would be like if I'm in a museum or something and I walk up to a painting and I might go through this series of, of thoughts rather quickly. I recognize it's a portrait as opposed to a landscape or something or an abstraction, right? Arguably every painting is an abstraction, but all right, that's another story. <laughs> all right, okay, stay on track, Ed. So I'll notice, okay, the genre, it's a portrait. And then I'll say, it's a representation of a person. Okay, there's a person. It's an image painted as if it's from a high school yearbook. It's uh, neutral toned, like grayscale, black and white. Oh, it's a photograph. Oh, the f person in the photograph is smiling. So I'm going through these kind of, they call it top-down uh, processing of these categories and subcategories within each genre. So we've got photography as an umbrella, but then if you say high school yearbook, then all of a sudden it's a certain type of photography. What this throws out there, though, is this idea of, of going back to 
crossing the street and not really looking around all that carefully, like how much of that are we doing when we're looking at an artwork? If we're just going through this process very quickly of identifying it without actually looking at it, you can just say, well, I see it's a person. I see it looks like the standard cropped uh, bust portrait and they're smiling and looking at the camera. So I'm like making these associations for what I think that this thing is. So now in a bottom up way, from what I understand is, is not happening or it's not happening as much. A bottom up response to something like this uh, experience here at a museum or whatever. And so let's go, I'll go through it again. So I walk in, I see it's a portrait. It's a representation of a person. It's an image from a high school yearbook. It's neutral toned grayscale. It's a painting of a blurry photograph. All of a sudden, my expectation is what has been disrupted. And now, theoretically, I'm in the bottom-up mode of looking at this artwork. So like in the case of Gerhard Richter, he paints like these blurred photographs, which I think are, this could be another conversation, but I don't think they're out-of-focus photographs. They're just blurred lines. So it's not so much that he made paintings of out-of-focus photographs. That would just be another version of a of a type of a photograph. But the fact that they're blurred all of a sudden changes that expectation. And it's, from what I've read, it, it's now the viewer might be more susceptible to actually looking at the thing and exploring it as an explorer, like somebody who's on a, dis, a mission of discovery of what it is that's in front of them, as opposed to a mission of uh, confirming assumptions of what it is. And, and hence, once the top-down processing is disrupted by the Toyota Camry, that all of a sudden I start seeing Toyota Camrys all over the place, and all of a sudden the, the, the color red is everywhere, whereas before I wasn't seeing it. And then we're back to our conversation about purple and whether or not it exists it could, the question could have more to do with whether or not it's noticeable and what it is that we're, how are our expectations driving what we actually see? And I guess what does that mean for, you know, approaching a strategy for making work? So maybe I'll leave it there. Purple, think about it. Purple and chartreuse, two fantastic supplemental colors and thermodynamics. Does Ed know anything about thermodynamics? Probably not. Although if their molecules are just rearranged and like made into new things, then maybe I'm like part Tyrannosaurus Rex or something like that, which I kind of like to think, or, or Godzilla. What if I was had some Godzilla carbon molecules floating around in there? That'd be pretty sweet. Uh, anyway, okay. Well, on that note... Uh, thank you for listening, and I'll catch you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested, and follow Chromosphere, the Color Theory Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinsky for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinsky again 
for their production, consulting, and editing.